Good afternoon, church. Today's teaching is taken from Malachi, the book of Malachi, that little unassuming book right at the end of the Old Testament. I think we've all done it before at some point in our walk with the Lord, where we've set out on January the 1st and said, this is the year I'm going to read through Genesis to Revelation this year. And you start in Genesis, you keep going, you keep going, and you get to Jonah, and it's November. You think, oh boy. So you read chapter 1, chapter 2, skip a few, and all of a sudden, look, you're in the New Testament, at the book of John. What happened to Matthew and Mark and Luke? And what happened to the Old Testament minor prophets? What happened to Malachi, Habakkuk, and those guys? You know, I know sometimes we've, we've all done that before, where we kind of skip a little bit. But you all understand and you all know the truth that Paul wrote to Timothy in the second letter, chapter 3. And he said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the, the minor prophets are called the minor prophets, not because they're vertically challenged, not because they're under 18, they're grown men, not because they have a less of a significant message to deliver. It's much more simple than that. They just use less words. They just use less words. And they focused on fewer topics rather than broad, sweeping topics. Short, concise, but powerfully impacting messages. Think about Jonah, who in just four chapters, but he had one message to give, and he hardly got into his one-sentence sermon, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned, and the whole of Nineveh repented, all in just four chapters. Or Haggai, who's very brief, handful of chapters there, but he stirred up the people of God to, to attend to rebuilding the temple that had fallen in in, in disarray after they came back from the exile. And so that was his task, to stir them up. And that was just in a few chapters. And then Zechariah came after him, and he called the people to repent. And because they had gotten to the same kind of ungodly practices as their forefathers had before the exile. So his message was very straightforward. They were to, to repent. They were to become a people that were fit for that new temple that had been built. And actually, at the end of Zechariah, which is just before Malachi, it, it ends with a, a sort of a messianic hope. He rekindles this hope. He assured people that God's comfort and care would be upon them. And Zechariah closes in Zechariah 14, 19, saying, well, that's the final chapter, but in there you see that it says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So there are a lot of promises there. Now, here in Malachi, though, where we're going to pick up, and actually we're going to start from chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Here in Malachi, his ministry was about 80 years after Zechariah and Haggai, about 430 BC. And what we find here are people that have grown somewhat cold. And we're going to see that some of them even fantasized about becoming pagans. Why? Well, essentially... They've gone and convinced themselves that apparently it was unprofitable to serve God. Too hard with too little return. We're going to see that. How do they get to that conclusion? How, how, do, they, how do they get there? Well, in Zechariah, previous book, chapter 1, 16 to 17, Zechariah writes, Therefore, says, says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of, of hosts, My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. What you read there, what the Israelite nation were uh, uh, taking upon themselves and, and, and seeing, were promises of God's blessing, prosperity, peace, comfort, the return of God's own glorious presence. So when you contrast that with where they find themselves now here in Malachi, what they're actually going through, the reality, which is that they're experiencing 
economic privation, crop failure, pestilence. That's what's going on at this time. And you only need to read into Malachi. You get into verse, chapter 3, verse 9, and you can see why they're cursed. They're cursed because they're robbing God, basically. They're robbing God. And God says to them, look, these things, things will work out for you if you return to me, if you revere me, if you walk in obedience as, as you should. And, and look what God says that he's going to restore to them and in Malachi 3, 11 to 12. That kind of gives us an understanding as to what they've been lacking all the time, all this time, and what they're going through. Malachi 3, 11 to 12, God says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So that wrong belief that they've somehow worked into their heads, that it's not profitable to serve God, actually, that highlighted something way deeper than that. It highlighted a profound lack of reverence for God. And that had crept into their hearts in such a way that it affected their worship. It affected the way that they conducted their lives. Even the priests condoned it. So Malachi, then, is who God uses to call the people to repent. Repent with respect to the priesthood, which had become corrupt now. Repent with regard to your worship, which has become routine and formal. Repent with respect to divorce, which was widespread. Repent with respect to social justice, which was completely ignored. Repent with respect to tithing, which was being neglected. So you see, look, there's, there's quite a lot in here that uh, Malachi is doing and telling the people. And it's no coincidence that Malachi prophesied at the time that he did. You know, his is the last book of the Old Testament. Between him and the New Testament, we have 400 years of silence. Not that there was nothing going on in Israel. Silence in the sense that God was not revealing anything new to the nation of Israel. So that's what we mean by the, the 400 years of silence. This is the intertestamental period. But Malachi is the one that predicts the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus. He refers to each of them as the messenger of God. One messenger will prepare the way for the, the actual messenger. And guess how the New Testament opens up? Precisely in that way. You see the birth of John the Baptist who comes to prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus, God incarnate. And interestingly enough, Malachi's name means my messenger. That's the meaning of his name. So, so God uses my messenger to tell the people about another messenger who's going to come and prepare the way for the messenger. You, you can't write that. No, he didn't. God wrote that. Now look, if I was to have a title for today, a Sunday, Remembrance Sunday, I think I would, uh, I would pose it as a question. Because you see, we honor those that gave their lives and we, uh, we remember them. They gave their lives in war to secure the kind of civil liberties that we, we enjoy today. But, but we'll see in Malachi that there's, there's, a, there's a bigger question, which is, who does God remember? It's more important to God to remember the glorious faithful. If you went to London now and looked at the cenotaph in Whitehall, you'll see it says, it's inscribed with the words, the glorious dead. And we honor those people, we do. But it's more important to God that there be the glorious faithful. And we'll see that. And I think Malachi can really help us with that. Let me just open up in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the gathering of your people and your open word, Lord. And I pray that you will speak to us. Help me to, to, to speak clearly and, and speak your words to everyone here, Lord. And would you, would you let your words fall on their hearts and, and open their ears that they may hear, Lord. And would you encourage us, Lord, and help us to be people that fear you and esteem your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to read through the text that we're going to actually go through. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn again to Matthew, uh, Malachi chapter 3. Uh, and we're going to go from verse 13 to 18. And I'll just read that. Verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? 
You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put to the test, they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The style of Malachi is quite straightforward. <clears throat> there aren't any perplexing visions like you find in Zechariah. And there's no doubt about what the message is that this prophet has to deliver to the people. But as you read through Malachi, you'll see that it's not presented in a, a flat and unimaginative way. There's a technique of dialogue that's used throughout Malachi. You know, so God uses Malachi and he, he says something. He, he speaks God's words. And then through Malachi, again, the people are presented as questioning what God has just said. Is that sort of ongoing technique. And I think it's quite useful because it, it, it helps to expose the shallowness of, of the objections that God's people have. And, and, it, and it also exposes the wrong understandings that they have. And we can see how they're being urged to renew their loyalty to God. And you get it right at the beginning. Look at chapter 1, verse, verse 2. And I love the way it opens here. I think this is one of the most beautiful openings to any scripture. I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But it's quickly followed by, and Malachi says to the people, but you say, but you say, how have you loved us? You all innocent, how have you loved us? And you see that throughout the book. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, verses 11 to 13, chapter 2, 13 to 14, and even right here in the portion of text that we just read, that we're studying, in through 13 to 15. Now, the book of Malachi contains a series of little debates that the Lord is having with Israel. And so let me just bring you up to speed. So by the point of our text, which is chapter 3, verse 13, Malachi's done a few things already. Number one, he has defended the reality of God's elect elective love for Israel, that I have loved you, that statement. And then it's followed by a, a, a sub substance to sort of substantiate that. That's chapter 1. To, to five. He's also exposed the offenses of worthless sacrifices and hypocritical worship. He's rebuking the priests for condoning these practices and for violating the covenant that God had made with the house of Levi. Yeah, and he made a covenant with the house of Levi, which is actually a covenant he made through an individual called Phineas. Now, Phineas was a priest. He was zealous for the Lord. He was the grandson of Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. And through the house of Levi, that's where the priesthood is established. Now, the, the covenant itself, and this is quite an important theme in Malachi, the covenant itself actually is found in Numbers 25.10, where the Lord says to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from, Israelite, from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him, I'm making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. And that's an important theme in Malachi because who gets the brunt of the indictments? It's the priests. And Malachi is holding them accountable and saying, look, your forefather, Phineas, the house of Levi, God made this covenant, set the standard, and you have fallen so far from this condoning all this worthless worship. You need to walk upright in accordance with the covenant. So he's calling them back to that. He's also condemned unauthorized divorce in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Basically saying, look, you people, you bring your offerings to, to the temple, and you see that God's not accepting it, and you're moaning and, and wailing, but it's all your fault. You, look what you're doing. You're going around divorcing yourselves. So he's, he's, he's bringing them, making that clear to them as well. He's also promised the coming of the messenger, as we've talked about, who will prepare the way for the, the messenger of the covenant, who comes to judge the world 
and the wicked and to purify his people. And you see that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And he's also alerted the people that their material downturn, all the stuff that's going on, you're not seeing fruitfulness in your, in your crops and so forth, all of that, again, it's all your fault because you've been begrudging the Lord what's his. You're robbing him. And he's calling them to, to, to be faithful in their giving so that they can experience divine blessing. So you see, how much weight is there in Malachi? And that's just in three chapters, in this small book. And that's what Malachi has to confront the people with, in just three chapters so far. And actually, the word, I don't know if you're in your translations, I, I've got an ESV translation. If you go into uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, the oracle of the word of the Lord. That word oracle... The Hebrew word for it is burden. That's what it actually means. So that sentence literally reads, the burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. Malachi had a lot of substance on his shoulders that he had to deliver. Don't skip the minor prophets. There's a lot of substance here. So we arrive at a point in the book now where we could say there is a blurring. There's a blurring. Uh, uh, of what's right and what's wrong going on throughout the, the Israelite community. And this is what the prophet now turns his attention to in this last dialogue, which continues till the end of the book. Now, we said it earlier, but I'll say it again. The problem here is that the people are complaining that they don't see what use it is to serve God. In verses 13 and 14 and 15. So let's have a look at these verses firstly, and see what's going on here. So verse 13. Now, in verse 13, we read, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? The people have taken an aggressive attitude towards God. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. They've become hard against me. And, you know, that the, their counter question, well, how have we spoken against you? It uses a form, that word to speak, it uses a construction that pictures them as speaking to one another, not directly to God, but to one another. And you see the same thing in Psalm 119.23, where it says, even though rulers sit and speak against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. What's going on here is that they're slandering God. Reminiscent of the murmuring that took place when... Uh, uh, you know, in Israel against the Lord's dealings with them after the, 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 the exodus, you know, and, and taking them through the wilderness. They were murmuring then. Numbers 21.5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up of, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. This worthless food. Manna from heaven. Bite the hand that feeds you. Why not? And it seems here that they wouldn't dare talk that jive directly to God, but they'll happily do it behind his back, thinking that he won't hear them, thinking that he doesn't take note. And so you see how they're being exposed here. Let's move into verse 14. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? Now, God's charge gets way more specific now. He say, but you say, you say, it's vain to serve God. Folks, serving God goes beyond corporate worship. It's about a life of total obedience. It's intended to be a matter of total commitment to God, done gladly and willingly. Deuteronomy 10.12 And now, Israel, what does, your, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? This is what the Lord blesses. And on the other hand, if you want to know what's truly futile, what's truly worthless, what really lacks substance, well, Zechariah tells us about that. Zechariah 10.2 He says, Idols, idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. If the people here in Malachi were talking about hey, it's futile to serve idols, then they'd be dead right. I'm with that, no problem, 100%. But futile to serve God, you can see that contrary to whatever they've been taught, 
They've gone and switched things around. They've, they've concluded that serving God is a disaster. It's, it's a sham. It leads nowhere. It's, there's no benefit in it. That's how they're thinking. And then look how they continue. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And you get some insight into their mentality here. You can see that the prime motive in their lives was actually personal material gain. What can I get out of this? God, if you can't deliver according to my terms, I'm out. See ya. And this is the attitude that drove a wedge between them and God. Instead, they should have been praying according to Psalm 119, 36, which is, turn my heart toward your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Now you can see also, look, they had a problem with carrying out God's requirements. Whatever it is that God had required, they had a problem with that. Keeping his charge. They weren't like Abraham. This is what God says of Abraham in Genesis 26.5. He says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So in rejecting this, they're defying God. And they're saying they're not prepared to live as covenant people. That's basically what they're saying. Now let's see how they carried themselves around the place. Walking as if, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. They really took a dismal view of serving God. And the word used for mourners comes from a root to mean to be dark. Not, not dark like me. Dark in terms of like the clothes that they're wearing. Ashes and sackcloth and that kind of thing. They're trying to please the Lord by behaving as if they've been grief-stricken, as if they're mourning over their sin. What's happening here is that they've clearly understood that God requires them to repent. So they're just acting as if they're penitent. Why do I say that? Well, because really, if you look at it, they're not convinced that they've done anything wrong. Look at their questions. Well, what have we said? What have I done? That innocent phrasing. They're not convinced. They don't think they need repentance. They're just going through the motions, expecting God would be pleased with the act. And you know what? If you follow their faulty logic further, if you take it to the end, you get onto some very dangerous ground. Because this lack of return for their efforts to please God, they've gone as far as to align themselves with the wicked, the arrogant. And in biblical terms, the arrogant are those, in Psalms 10.3, uh, the arrogant are those who bless the greedy and revile the Lord. There's nothing blessed, blessed worthy in that, you know, from God. They themselves bless the greedy and revile the Lord. Now, speaking of the Psalms, Asaph comes to mind. Asaph, who was a Levite, who was a singer in King David's courts, he wrote 12 of the Psalms. And one of them, Psalm 73, is, is an amazing reader. I love that psalm. And Asaph says in 73, 3 to 5, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Do you know, Asaph, he was also tempted by those kind of thoughts. He was looking around him, comparing his struggles to, to the guy next door, to the apparent easy life of the evildoers. Yeah, we've all done that. Oh, that guy I went to school with, look at him. Five holidays a year. He's got to be on at least 250K. Now I need to look after the kids. And look at me, struggling. Bills everywhere I look, problems every day. Bible tells me, forgive him, forgive that. Treat this one as higher than me. They've got the better deal. And they're atheists. This is where they're going, guys. This is where they're going with their thinking. They're thinking that the evildoer has got the better end of the stick. But you know, Asaph, even though he exposes his thinking to us through the scriptures, he also knows where to draw the line. If you read the same psalm, Psalm 73, 15, Asaph writes, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 
What he's admitting there is he wrestled with these things privately in his mind. Because if he had gone around parading this kind of nonsense openly, he says, well, what kind of example would I set for the younger generation? What kind of outlook would they have about the living God and about serving him? And he eventually goes into the Lord's sanctuary, the right place. He goes into the Lord's presence, his temple, and he quickly discerns what's going to happen to those people that he's been secretly admiring that their, their, their outcome is going to be swift, it's ominous. I urge you to read Psalm 73 and see the whole story. But the point is, here in Malachi, these people, don't, they don't guard their tongues. They don't check their thinking. They don't care to call good evil and evil good, which the Lord hates. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call good evil or evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This goes directly against the nature of God, his attributes. He is holy. There is no mixture of evil and light within him. And so that's why he takes such a hard stance on the mixing of those two categories, and we should too. But these guys... These, the Israelites at the time of Malachi, you see, they've gone so far and they come right out with it. They say, ah, well, I even call the wicked blessed. They even call them blessed and they admit it openly. Commentator John McKay calls this a perversion of the true ascription of blessedness. In other words, you've got it all wrong. God doesn't bless the arrogant any more than he punishes the righteous. That is not the biblical God. Now those that are called arrogant here, they could be evildoers within the nation of Israel, or that could be a reference to other foreign nations, but the heart of the matter is, the point is, this is not covenantal behavior. This is not covenantal thinking. And the people of Israel are effectively saying, we might as well become pagans. That's what they're saying. Now, 15, verse 15. What kind of evidence do they rummage up to support this outlandish thinking? Tail end of verse 15. Well, they say, well, evildoers prosper. They can even challenge, they can test God and escape. That's their rationale. In other words, it doesn't pay to serve God as a covenant member. We get nothing from it. Evildoers are better established than us. They're doing much better than us. They can toe the line. Heck, they can even traverse the line on any moral prohibition and get away with it. We might as well abandon the worship of the Lord and his covenant to the dust with that. That's what they're saying. You see how far their hearts were? <laughs> far away. But then we read in verse 16, 18, we, we, we come to something which is a lot sweeter. Because for all the talk of the faithlessness that was rife in the community of Israel, thank God it wasn't universal. Not everyone shared that particular point of view. So now you no longer hear of the voices of those that were set on following the arrogant and, and their practical atheism. We now hear of those who feared the Lord and spoke with one another. In verse 16. Do you know the teacher in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, after giving a long discourse, talking about all the things of life, she tried everything. He sums it all up with this. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Did you ever wonder what your life's purpose is? Ever wonder what you're supposed to do? Why you're here? Very simple. Fear God. Fear God. Fear God. This is the essence of true religion. Fearing God is to revere Him. It's to honor Him. Like the, like the way we're supposed to honor our parents. But it goes further. It's to stand in awe of Him. You know, we don't need to go very far in Malachi to see a perfect example of that right here. Turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 5. We talked about the covenant that he made with the house of Levi. 
through a man called Phineas. But this is what he says about him. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, for he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. This is what it looks like to fear the Lord. It's evidenced by walking in his ways, which results in true blessings. And guess what? The Lord takes immense delight in that. And you all know Proverbs 1.7, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this group of people that we're now reading of, they're, they're marked out by their main characteristic. They fear God, but they speak with one another. And that, again, the word speak here carries that same sense what we talked about before, where the faithless, they're speaking with one another, slandering God. Over here, context is different. They get together, you get, they get together to encourage one another. When evil is rampant, the faithful, God-fearing community get together, not necessarily take on their adversaries, but to encourage one another. And that has that sense of Hebrews 10.25. Which, is, which says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we're not told exactly what they said to one another, but we do see God's reaction, which is all the more important. And he paid attention, and he heard. God is not an idle spectator. He's not just sat there, just disconnected from things. Like the old heresy of deism, God creates the world and lets it run and it does its thing and he's disconnected. No. No. He's, he pays attention. He sees all things, even with the faithless. Think about it. He pays attention to them to the degree that he exposes their false motives. He's got to know what's going on. Of course he does. And so will he not pay more attention, even more attention, to those who actually revere him? He takes active note. So friends, look, when we minister to one another, when we encourage one another in private, when we're bearing with one another, forgiving one another, serving one another, all these things that we do, which others might not necessarily see, God sees and he takes note. He takes note. He takes note as a capacity of a witness because he's gathering up evidence that will be used to support your case on a day that he's appointed for future judgment. It's not what saves you, but it's what shows that you are saved. And so these people, these are the ones that do the opposite of what the rest of the community have been doing. They bring fitting sacrifices to God. They are faithful to their spouses. They don't profane the name of the Lord. They don't look at the wicked and envy them. They don't dream of a life outside of God's covenant. They don't imagine what it would be like to be an evildoer, an arrogant person. And so in answer to our question, who does God remember? These are the ones that God remembers. These ones. Well, how so? How does he remember them? We continue reading. He says a book of remembrance is written in God's presence concerning those people that feared the Lord and esteemed his name. To esteem God's name doesn't focus on outward actions primarily, no. It's more of a, an inward respect. And the basic idea of the word used here you know, is, is, is a mind that's meditating. In other words, it's engaged in thought. True godly meditation is not about emptying your mind and all this kind of stuff. No, it's to attach the highest value to God and to meditate upon his word frequently and meaningfully. It's to be like the psalmist who writes in Psalm 1 verse 2. It's being that person whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now look, we don't know who writes this book of remembrance, but that's not the point. The Lord of hosts, and that title is used so many times in this book, it just recurs all the time, which means uh, it has a military sort of prowess with it, a commander of the highest order. This is the Lord who created everything and presides over everything. So he can 
order angels to write in a book, that's not a problem. I don't have a problem with that. It's fine. And God doesn't need to be reminded of things. He's all-knowing. But we have to take this as it reads. He does have a book of remembrance. Not of the sins of those who he saves, no. Because Hebrew Hebrews 8.12 tells us, says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Which is refreshing if you think about it, isn't it? <laughs> but nevertheless, he keeps the book of remembrance. And it also gives us comfort to know that he notes the service of faithful people. He remembers it, and he rewards the service of faithful people. You know, the practice of keeping record in a book like this was commonplace in the ancient times, especially by kings. And um, if you read the book of Esther, I love that book. It's so fascinating, so fascinating. If you read that book, you'll see that there's a king in there, King Ahasuerus, who the historians liken to be King Xerxes I, same person. He kept a book, the Chronicles, in which the name... Um, well, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, his name was written in that book. What had happened was Mordecai was sat outside the, 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 the king's palace by the gates, and he overheard a conversation. He basically unfoiled a plot to, uh, to overthrow the king. And that message got to the king through Esther. And it led to the conviction and the execution of two of the king's servants, two eunuchs. And it was made known to the king, recorded in that book. So this is a concept that the people that are hearing this are very familiar with. But in that story, in Esther, one night the king couldn't sleep, and so he ordered the book to be brought to him, you know, bedtime reading and so forth. And you read in Esther chapter 6, 1 to 3, tail end of chapter 1, uh, verse, verse 1, he says, or it says, And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Well, nothing yet had been done for him. Not yet. Not for Mordecai, not that, not, not that point. But in the final chapter of Esther, in that final chapter, chapter 10, only three verses, it's dedicated to the greatness of Mordecai. I can read it now for you. Look, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. You see, there was a delay in the reward coming to Mordecai, but he was made great. He was made great. He got his reward. You know, the dead that gave their lives in World War I, World War II, and subsequent wars, you might say that they're rewarded by the proof of their achievement, which is reflected in the way of life that we enjoy today. Because things could have been very different for all of us if the war had ended differently. But under God's providence, it, it didn't. It ended the way we know. A comrade would probably say, look, they didn't die in vain. What, on the other hand, is the reward for those that fear God? Those in the Book of Remembrance who might not see much in return right now for their service, but they trust in him, they esteem his name all the same. What was in, what's in it for them? Look at the next verse, verse 17. They will be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. That term, treasured possession, in a sort of secular context, it pictures the personal property of a king rather than what's his as a monarch. Kind of like King Charles's private art collection, which he inherited from his mother, of course. And within that collection, he's got several pieces that he himself has, has chosen. But that collection, it's his. Estimated at 10 billion, did you know? That's his. Look, the people here are already God's treasured possession. It's not that they are not his possession. Now and only one day they'll become 
his treasured possession. And Israel understands this because it's part of their history. God told them this in the covenant, covenant he made with them on Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy 7, 6. Here's what he told them way back. He said, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I remember how Malachi opens, chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. Sure, it's in the past tense, that phrase, but the actions of God that we read of in the verses that to come, and actually throughout the whole Bible, just demonstrates that his love is active into the present day and will be well into the future for eternity. That phrase, I have loved you, you can take it to mean I have loved you from eternity past. I have already determined to love you. That decision to love you has already been taken. And it won't change. And that's the basis from which all of God's actions towards the object of his affection, those who fear him, spring from. Think about this. God never used to love anyone. He never used to love. He's not like some of our car engines, start and stop, start and stop. <laughs> if he loved them before the foundation of the world, he loves them at the time Malachi is speaking to them, and he will continue to love them always. If he has loved us before the foundation of the world, he loves us here and now, and he will continue to love us through eternity and forever. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. God doesn't change, and you don't need to stray too far from Malachi to see it. Right here in Malachi 3, 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. You can take that to the bank all day, every day. He does not change. You can trust that. Now look at the next part. Why would God refer to his book of reference, uh, remembrance? What happens with his treasured possession? What's the actual reward then? Well, He's written down the names. He knows the identities of every single one of those that he will spare. And that's the key there, spare. He'll spare them like a son is spared who serves his father. I thought that was a bit, very interesting illustration there, but it ties back with a relationship that Malachi mentions in chapter 1, verse 6. A relationship between a father-son that's actually been dishonored. Look, he says, a son, this is God speaking, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. And isn't that the heart of the problem? Sin is all around sinning, despising God's name, not giving him the due honor, except those few. Those who actually fear God, that's why they will be spared. Those who esteem his name, those are whom God remembers. And these ones, like Mordecai, will get their public recognition. They'll be openly vindicated. Let's stop for a minute just to think and look at what God has done to include you and me, his church, into that promise. Titus. Paul writes to Titus, chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. Marinate on this one. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The grace of God, that unmerited favor of God, which is upon you, is shown to you most clearly, most definitively, in the giving of his own Son, Jesus.
Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And he purifies you. He makes you his own treasured possession. He saved you. He is saving you. And he will save you. He will shield you on the day of the Lord's appearance. And that's because of him that you can take this next promise to heart as well. Look, chapter 4 of Malachi, verses 2 and 3. What does that say? Which, which we can take for ourselves too. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And verse 18, where God is saying, well, once more, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't serve him. Here, the word you, who he's talking to now, is actually referring back to the faithless community, back to them, saying, you guys who have blurred things won't be long, and things will be crystal clear. They had a problem with serving God. They should have known that there is a difference between those that serve God and those that don't. God has made it apparent to them on many occasions before, hence the word, once more, I'll make it clear to you. They should have known better. They could have learned that God's justice is discriminating. It falls only on those who don't serve him. Think about it, because that's what they would deserve. But those who do serve him, they are living proof that it's God's mercy that has fallen upon them, not the justice. So when you pray, pray for God's mercy. Don't pray for his justice. Let's go to the book of Nahum for a minute. Because in the book of Nahum, there are several judgments against Israel, uh, against the nation of uh, Assyria, actually, Israel's enemy. So Israel should have known that actually... There's enough evidence that God does distinguish. He knows who is who. Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an over overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. There were plenty of occasions like this throughout the Old Testament for Israel to know and understand this about the character of God. If they did take notes, they didn't reread them, you know. If they think the lines are blurred now, God is saying there'll be no shadow of doubt. On the Lord's day, you won't be calling evildoers blessed anymore. The arrogant and their carefree living, you'll be saying they can have it. Malachi has sounded the warning bell. And it reverberates from his time right through into ours. Don't give God pretend worship. You can't afford to play fast and loose with God and the things of God. On the other hand, fear God. Esteem his name. Because if you truly belong to him, this will be evident in you. The book of remembrance has got your name in it and you're safe. You're secure. I pray that the words of Malachi find a place in your heart today. And we start wrapping up by saying what I said at the start. As important as it is to remember the glorious dead today, it is more important to God that there be glorious faithful. He remembers only those who fear him and esteem his name for glory. You know, we sang a song earlier on. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Great the city of our God, the holy place, the joy of the whole earth. I love that song. And we'll be singing another song shortly which will, will teach you. Um, it's a new one. But in this song, the faithful declare their stance. We choose the fear of the Lord, is the song that we'll be singing. And you know, like the Lord himself, who knows who is who and what is what, let us align ourselves with him. Let's be a people that recognizes the clear distinction between good and evil between the fruits of one who is being saved and one who is perishing. Let's be a people that plead with the unsaved to repent of their sin, to cling to Christ, 
and to fear God for the sake of their souls. But let's not be a people that compromises our loyalty. We won't compromise our loyalty to the Holy God and we're not going to blur the lines between light and darkness. The book of remembrance in which God notes the faithfulness of those who fear him. Do you know, it ultimately matches, corroborates with the book of life which belongs to the Lamb of God, Christ himself. And that is your gateway to the new Jerusalem, that great city. Our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who freed us from the grip of sin, who has spared us from ongoing eternal destruction, He's prepared a place for us in His perfect eternal dwelling place. I want to leave you with one thought for you to meditate upon this image, this future reality, which is painted for us in Scripture. Our, this, we'll take this as our final Scripture. Revelation 21, 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, writes John, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every opportunity we get to delve in deeper and to understand what it is that you've told your people and tell us now today. Father, let us be a people that fear you, esteem your name, not just publicly and from what we say, but in how we act and in what we do, how we think. Let us honor your name in all things, seeking never to compromise on your word, Lord. Keep us secure and hold us fast, Lord, waiting for the day of your appearance in which, Lord, we take great comfort that we will be spared, Lord, and we will enjoy eternity with you, Father. In the meantime, Lord, give us boldness, give us courage to be able to navigate this world and this society in which we live, to be a witness, a faithful witness to others, and to call out against the evil that we see and also call many to you and away from iniquity, Lord. Mm. Help us to be people that are serious about your business. Father, we thank you for having taught us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.